before we begin the episode, a word from this week's sponsor. Your life is hanging by a thread, but who's pulling the strings? When I'm not reading up on or researching true crime for an episode of the show, I never properly get away from crime or murder, and I do now and again sit down and switch off with a bit of crime fiction. So I'm pleased that the sponsor of the show this week is the latest thriller from Sunday Times best-selling author Daniel Cole. The eagerly awaited follow-up to his 2017 thriller Ragdoll and the latest in the Ragdoll series, Hangman. Hangman is a high-concept thriller that's as perfect for fans of true crime as it is for die-hard crime fiction heads. And the latest in the Ragdoll series finds Cole's established detective, Detective Chief Inspector Emily Baxter, in a race against time to stop a particularly gruesome killer who keeps the bodies piling up on both sides of the Atlantic. Sounds good? Well, I think so, and a number of best-selling crime fiction authors think so as well. Daniel can count authors such as Rachel Abbott and MJ Arledge as fans, and perhaps you can be also. If you like a thriller along the lines of The Bone Collector or Seven, you know, what's in the box, don't open the box, then give Hangman a try. Published by Trapeze Publishers, it's now available in paperback from all good high streets and online bookstores, with a link available with this week's show notes. A detective with no one to trust meets a killer with nothing to lose. Hangman. Out now. Hey all, a warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that chooses and accounts some of the most obscure, forgotten and unfamiliar cases, both solved and unsolved ones, that the UK and Ireland has to offer. I'm your host Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the ace enthusiasts of the show, and I thank you for joining me here this week. It's brilliant of you. New friends of the show, welcome. Old friends, welcome back. And I hope that this episode finds everybody well. A special thanks and welcome to new Patreon supporters of the show, namely Vicky London, Alex Stone, Jason Smith, Abby Bergwies, Nicola Jones and Chris Warburton. If you guys are listening, I know that a couple of episodes may have gone by since you supported and I haven't already passed on my thanks. I wouldn't want you thinking, oh he's forgotten. I haven't forgotten. I just had some episodes pre-done during the mid-series break, so I'm catching up with names now. I will always get around to saying thanks, of course I will. I hope that you're enjoying the content that comes with Patreon support in the show, the 10 bonus episodes available to date, with number 11 coming pretty soon on the 1st of December. If you too fancy supporting the show also to hear these episodes, then it's dead easy. Just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Or there's a nice shiny clickable link in with the show notes this week as always. There are all different tiers available and supporting is very reasonable. It works out less than the cost of a pint a month. For this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, once again there's a bit of a detour and we're back in Ireland for this week's tale. We had a jaunt there last series and are doing so again this one. And in fact, when I start my usual waffle at the beginning of each episode... I've amended this to include Ireland now. I didn't realise just how many intriguing cases there are from there, and this week's I hope you find is one of those. That doesn't mean that I'm country hopping from now on, I'm not suddenly going to become True Crime Mozambique or This Week's Tale Comes from the Solomon Islands, nothing like that. But it's a tale that I came across and found it one that I wanted to share. This week's episode features a tragedy which, when examined, led to a killer who did the absolute unthinkable for reasons that it's hard to fathom. 
The episode does contain descriptions of crimes involving the death of an infant, which some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as this week we look back at a case that I've entitled The Inferno. It was the 10th of September 1992, and Garda officer James Murphy was on duty outside the ruins of a house in the Rathfarnham area of Dublin, number 39 Butterfield Avenue. The ruins were the aftermath of a horrific fire that had taken place some days earlier, which had cost the lives of a young woman and the baby that she was hoping to adopt, and the Garda were preserving the scene until the cause of the blaze could be fully determined limiting access to Garda and fire service personnel only. By all accounts, the fire had been an absolute inferno, the type of which that no one trapped inside could have hoped to have got out from alive. In the course of his duties that day, Garda Murphy had been approached by a man who had walked up to the front gate where he was stood and asked him if the house was still under wraps. He was told that it was, and when Garda Murphy inquired further as to the man's interest, he was told that this was where the man he was speaking to used to live. The man's name was Frank McCann. There was something a bit peculiar about the guy. He appeared almost jovial, despite being at the scene of a horrific tragedy and one that was such a personal loss to him. McCann told Garda Murphy that had he been killed in the fire, his wife would have received £250,000 in an insurance payment. He then volunteered further that just two weeks before the fire, he had attempted to insure his wife's life for £50,000, and then began relating a bizarre story about being with friends earlier in the week, when they'd begun laughing about him saying that he was planning on having a barbecue, which he claimed he'd said without realising. Closing the conversation by saying, Ah, but it's no use to her now anyway, McCann then walked off. Now that sounds a bit bizarre, right? The tale began six days earlier. At about 1.30am on the morning of Friday the 4th September 1992, the owner of number 40 Butterfield Avenue, Richard Duggan, was awoken by the sound of someone struggling to start a car and then driving off at high speed. Thinking very little of this except for the inconvenience of being woken up, he went back to a half-sleep. It was just ten minutes later when a series of loud bangs and breaking glass awoke Richard and the rest of the neighbours on the suburban estate. As each looked out of the window to see the cause, the horrific scene they saw before them caused the majority of those able to to hurriedly dress and rush out to see what they could do to help. Number 39, a large semi-detached property near to where Butterfield Avenue meets Washington Park, was ablaze with a ball of flame coming out of the front door of number 39 like a rolling ball. The fire was raging, with flames licking up the exterior walls through the broken windows of the property, which had exploded out because of the heat. A group of people travelling back to Dublin from a wedding in County Wicklow by chance found themselves lost and driving along Butterfield Avenue at that very moment, and upon seeing the inferno, they stopped and got out to try to alert any occupants of the house and to get them out. One of the group, Brendan Dennehy, tried to get into the property but was driven back by the intense heat and clouds of choking smoke coming from the blazing house. In the flurry of activity as he was joined by neighbours from Butterfield Avenue, 
out of the corner of his eye, he noticed a man in the front garden of the house. In the chaos, it took Brendan a few seconds to register what the man was saying, but then with horror, it dawned on him that the man was pointing upwards towards the bedroom windows and shouting that his wife and baby were in there. News quickly spread amongst the gathered onlookers that Esther McCann, the woman who lived in the property, was still inside, alongside little Jessica, an 18-month-old toddler that Esther and her husband Frank were hoping to adopt. Neighbours found a ladder and made brave attempts to reach the first floor window, but they could not withstand the heat. Moments later the fire service were on the scene and they too made an attempt to get in, but were also driven back by the inferno. Frank McCann, meanwhile, was having to be physically restrained by a neighbour, Marie Daly, as he was in the garden attempting to rush into the fire and then rush to the ladder to get upstairs. Marie said later, He appeared in an awful state. He kept shouting, Esther and my baby, my wife and baby are up there. He was pointing to both upstairs windows and I was consoling him, saying the fire brigade are here. I held on to him and tried to reassure him, but it was all too much for him. The next thing he fainted and fell back. His head brushed the branch and his glasses went flying off his face. A paramedic at the scene rushed over and began to administer first aid to the fallen man, but within seconds he was back on his feet. In fact, he jumped up with such haste that the paramedic was taken aback startled. He was soon apparently totally overcome with grief and fainted a number of times more, in between which he appeared to be suffering panic attacks. Members of his family soon arrived and took the weeping man to his mother's house in Talach, where he was placed under sedation. Before long, the scene was one of utter devastation, although it was brought under control in an unexpectedly short time. Firefighters and emergency crews attending the blaze had of course seen a lot over the years, but there was something about this fire from the off which wasn't quite right. The ferocity of the blaze was very unusual. They described it later as a real inferno, much more intense than the average domestic fire, and it had gutted the interior of the house remarkably quickly. And yet they were surprised at just how quickly the intensity of the blaze had gone out and it could be brought under control. When it was deemed safe for the crews to do so, they entered the now devastated property. Nothing could have prepared them for the scene that they found inside. Firefighter Pascal Henry was the first to discover the body of one of the occupants of the house, 36-year-old Esther McCann. She lay on the upstairs landing, half in and half out of her bedroom. She had horrific burns to the entire upper half of her body, caused when she tried to escape from the badly burned master bedroom to rescue little Jessica, but was beaten back by the intensity of the fire. Eighteen-month-old Jessica was found still in her cot, killed by smoke inhalation. She still had a dummy in her mouth. What a tragedy and what an awful thing that must have been to find. Sergeant Tony Heavey from Tallet Station was among the first Garda responders at the scene and after the firefighters had extinguished the fire and designated the property safe for emergency personnel, he set about sealing the scene off and ensuring a proper cordon, allowing access to only authorised persons. At that stage, he was the first and only uniformed guarder to enter the scene, 
and he went about the incinerated property making initial observations. Immediately it seemed apparent that the fire seemed to have been concentrated in the hallway. It was completely devastated. The living room carpet near to the door was burned away, exposing the floorboards beneath, and although the rest of the living room carpet was intact, it was covered with the debris caused by the fire and the extinguishment. He further noticed that the patio door from the living room into the back garden was unlocked, with a set of keys still hanging in the lock, although the door itself was badly burned. Once outside the house, Sergeant Heavey watched as fire service personnel began removing items from the scene, among which he noticed two items that didn't seem to fit in with what would normally be found in a tidy, semi-detached house interior. On a badly charred table that was carried out of the hallway, he noticed a small gas cylinder and a blow lamp. After conferring with a fire officer, police and fire service were of the same thought. The chances of the blaze being accidental looked slim indeed, as the loud bangs, the intense heat and the appearance of the fire being more of an inferno had all the hallmarks of an explosion. There were also the discoveries that Sergeant Healy had noticed, the blow lamp and the gas cylinder, out of place items and very suspicious to be discovered at the scene of a fatal fire. It appeared that the fire was deliberate and was no accident. Senior officers from Rathfarnham Station, Superintendent Pat King and Detective Inspector Tony Sork were awakened and informed of the incident and after being informed that a fire resulting in two deaths had occurred in Rathfarnham, they both travelled to the scene. Early on Saturday the 5th of September, just hours after the fatal fire, they led a Garda conference held at Talat Station. As news of the horrific blaze had already made the national headlines, Widespread interest was in the case, especially because the fire was being treated as an arson attack. Dozens of officers had been drafted into the squad, and at that early morning meeting, it was decided that this would be run as a murder inquiry in all but name, with the set procedures for such an investigation followed. House-to-house inquiries would be made, questionnaires would be circulated, and vehicle checkpoints would be established, to speak to passing motorists who may have been potential witnesses. But the investigative team were also as keen to speak to Frank McCann, and to hear what he had to say. Did he have any known enemies, or did he suspect anybody himself? And what was he himself doing at the time of the fire? That Saturday afternoon, Frank McCann arrived at Rathfarnham Station, asked in in a sensitive request from D.I. Sork. Now the inquiry team were fully aware and sympathetic to his harrowing, devastating loss, but speaking to him was of the utmost importance to help provide a possible motive and to generally focus the energies of the inquiry team. He arrived accompanied by his brothers Michael and Bernard and a friend of the family, Susan Clegg. These waited in another room of the station whilst the investigating team of D.I. Sork and D.C. Patrice spoke to Frank a long rambling interview which took almost five hours to complete and to transcribe. At times he was too overcome with emotion and broke down in front of detectives, causing several breaks in the questioning. But he did come up with a story that provided investigators with several possible avenues of inquiry. Frank was a publican 
and he'd made complaints to the guarder in Blessington that he'd been receiving threats at the Cooperage pub which he owned and ran. Now it's well known that successful premises such as pubs are often targets of extortion and protection rackets. Some Dublin pubs at the time had been firebombed because the owners refused to pay protection money to the racketeers. Was this what happened here? But then, why target the publican at home? McCann told how he believed that the arson attack was linked to a series of threats that had been made against him over the phone and in writing. He described how only some days before, he discovered a slogan painted on the back wall of the Cooperage pub, depicting the words, Burn you bastard! and had subsequently found the word burn circled near the entry for the Cooperage pub in the pub's telephone directory. He then claimed that he'd also found the word bastard circled against the number of another licensed premises across the road from the Cooperage, the West Wicklow Hotel, who he told detectives had also received threatening telephone calls. On the previous evening, McCann claimed that he and his wife had stayed in watching a film on television until about 11pm, where shortly afterwards he'd gone out and driven to the pub to count up the night's takings and prepare a float for the following day. However, worried about the threatening telephone calls and message, which he'd not told Esther about because he didn't want to worry her, he claimed that distracted, shortly after his arrival he'd gone for a bite to eat and a cup of tea in the local takeaway which he couldn't eat as he claimed. My tummy was heaving as I was petrified. I had a bad feeling. McCann claimed that he was at the Cooperage no later than 11.30pm and that the pub was empty of customers by 12.30am. He then allowed the barman, Alex McDonnell, to leave at about 1 o'clock in the morning, saying that he himself would finish clearing up before he realised that he'd not done a stock check in the cellar and he'd stayed on to do that. McCann then told the guarder in his statement, Now I know that if I'd not done that, I would have been home in time and I could have saved them. McCann then locked up the pub at about 1.20 to 1.30am and drove straight home. When he arrived back on his street, he saw a commotion in a crowd of people and at first thought there was a party underway. He then realised that his house was on fire and parking up, he ran into the drive shouting that his wife and baby were inside. He tried to get through the throng of people to get inside the house or to get a ladder, but was physically restrained from doing so. He then passed out and had been taken to his mother's house and sedated. On a couple of occasions during his statement, his brothers had looked into the interview room and had actually made the crack that Frank must be giving detectives his life story the amount of time that his statement was taken, and whilst Frank gave detectives every reason he could to think that he was the victim of a protection demand from criminals or subversives that he'd refused, the two experienced detectives couldn't help thinking that his account was exactly that, a story. The tears and demeanour just really didn't wash with them at all, Neither had come down in the last shower, and it seemed to them just too insincere, as though it were an act. Detective Treacy said later, We took 21 pages of notes and he was rambling in and out of tangents, laughing and crying. Tony and I looked at each other. A victim gives off a certain aura and there's a genuineness when someone is in the throes of grief. We weren't getting that from him. 
But some people deal with grief in differing ways, don't they? And regardless of their own opinions, they were duty-bound to check out the allegations that McCann had made. They went and visited the cooperage later that afternoon, where they inspected the rear wall of the premises where McCann had reported that someone had written the threatening slogan. Indeed, it was there, Burn You Bastard, painted on the wall in two-inch white paint. They also examined and took away for handwriting analysis the telephone directory from the bar, in which the words Burn and Bastard had been written and circled exactly how McCann had described. Detectives also that day visited number 39 Butterfield Avenue, where fire service and scenes of crime persons were still working at the scene. A cursory search of the exterior of the property, the interior and garage was performed, and items such as the blowtorch and gas cylinder on the badly burned table that had been removed from the property and placed into the front garden were taken away for examination. In the garage, two items of note for Garda were also found, and although they're items that could be found in any shed or garage, perhaps you even have them in yours, in the context of the events that had led them there, Garda made an especial note of these. Two smoke alarms, unfitted and still in their packaging, were found, alongside two cans of white paint and several two-inch paint-stained brushes. Whilst house-to-house inquiries were underway, Detectives got to learn in all that they could about Frank and Esther McCann. The couple who had, until the, just the day before, lived at number 39. Frank and Esther McCann had married on the 22nd of May 1987. They'd first met at Dublin's Shelbourne Hotel, where Esther was at the time the office manager and banqueting coordinator. Frank was on a night out there with friends one night in 1986, when he saw Esther and was immediately smitten with her. Before long they became a couple and were married just a year later, moving into the newly purchased house in Butterfield Avenue. Esther was originally from Tremor in County Wexford in the southeast of Ireland. The youngest daughter of Bridget and Thomas O'Brien, she moved to Dublin in 1973 to pursue a career in psychology at UCD. While enrolled in university, she developed an interest in computing and gave up her degree course to pursue this. In 1976, she joined the Shawl Footwear Company as a manageress before leaving in 1979 to become a trainer with Nexus Office Systems. She stayed in this role until 1984, where she left to take the role at the Shelbourne Hotel on St. Stephen's Green, where she met her future husband, Frank. Two years later, she took a role with O'Hare Barry and Associates accounting firm before this company split to branch off into separate firms, Esther joined one of the senior partners as a personal assistant. Esther had been very well liked, and everyone who knew her described her as kind-hearted and sympathetic, someone who really went out of her way to help other people. This feeling and empathy for people was no doubt sharpened by tragedies that she'd suffered in her own early life. Perhaps the most defining moment was that, at age just 23 in 1979, her boyfriend at the time had been killed in a motorcycle accident, just a few days after Esther had discovered she was pregnant with the couple's first child. Her family rallied round, supported her through the aftermath of the accident and her pregnancy, and even helped to buy a house for her and baby Sarah when she came along seven months later. 
When she was just seven weeks old, however, Sarah tragically died of sudden infant death syndrome. Some people really get absolutely more than anyone could possibly take thrown at them, don't they? But Esther did eventually learn to live with this, and she threw herself into work, concentrating on helping others. An example of her generosity and drive were the free computer learning classes that she put on for local women, enjoying teaching and watching the novice become skilled under her tutelage. She also helped establish the Connor Farrelly Trust Fund, which raised £20,000 and was instrumental in helping a friend of hers son, who had cerebral palsy, visit the Pito Institute in the former Yugoslavia for specialist treatment. Esther was also very close to her nephew James Leonard, a brilliant student and sportsman who sadly developed bone cancer. Esther managed to squeeze extra hours out of each of her busy days to visit her nephew and he was regularly mentioned in a computer diary that she kept. The difference between her and Frank couldn't have been more marked. You have Esther, a warm, generous and loving individual, and you have Frank, who was arguably as determined as Esther, but was cold, could be cruel and was ultra-secretive. Born in 1960 as part of a family of four sons and a daughter born to Joan and Frank McCann Sr., Frank grew up living with his family at Fernhill Road in Dublin. The family were later to move to Waynesfoot Road in Terenure, where Frank was to go through schooling before ending up at Templelog College. Teachers there remember him as being an unusually bright student, one who they described could have easily gone on to study medicine. When he left here in 1976, Frank joined his brothers at the Irish Distillers as a trainee cooper, and as he was the last apprentice one of these to be taken on by the company, his photograph appeared in several national newspapers. But in 1982, the whiskey company made a spate of redundancies, and Frank was one of those let go. He took his redundancy payments and established his own firm, Irish Craft Coopers, which was based on Dublin's Green Hills Industrial Estate. For a number of years, the business turned over, but in November 1989, the plant was destroyed by a mysterious fire. Investigations discovered it likely that an accelerant had been used to start the blaze deliberately at two different locations within the factory premises. A full investigation was never able to reveal the culprit nor the exact circumstances, and nobody was ever charged or prosecuted for the fire, and the insurance company was later to pay out the sum of £92,000. With the proceeds from the insurance, Frank decided on a change of direction and entered the publican trade. Between he and his brother Bert, in 1991 they purchased a rundown pub in Blessington in County Wicklow, the Mary Rose. They completely gutted and renovated the interior, and then with a touch of sentiment, they renamed it the Cooperage, after the industry in which both had worked. So he was described as hard-working, but from an early age, Frank was also an outstanding and very gifted swimmer, going on to represent not just his school, but then district, and then even country at underage and senior level. Once his competitive swimming days were over, he retained his enthusiasm and interest in the sport, and moved into the administrative and coaching side of it. Eventually he was so successful in this venture, 
that he reached the top of the Irish Amateur Swimming Association. He became president of the Leinster branch and was due to be the next president of the National Association. It led to him being involved with the Olympic Council of Ireland, where he was to work closely all over the world at competitions with some of Ireland's promising young Olympians, chaperoning and managing swimming teams that included future triple Olympic gold medalist swimmer Michelle Smith, who is still Ireland's most successful Olympian to date. Pop trivia quiz? He was known as an attentive coach who was, shall we say, very hands-on with his students. He was that hands-on that in the summer of 1987, shortly after he'd married Esther, a teenage swimmer under Frank's charge gave birth to his child. That's pretty hands-on, isn't it? By any standards, this would have been a scandal. 17-year-old Catholic girl becomes pregnant by senior swimming official, and if it went public, it would ruin not only his marriage, but his career in swimming. He'd never be able to show his face in swimming circles again. An appearance was everything to Frank. There was no question of a termination as the girl was a staunch Catholic, but it was agreed that the baby boy was to be put up for adoption. But not content with having the affair and his love child kept secret, Frank then refused to contribute anything towards the welfare of the mother and child, or her medical expenses. It took the intervention of the girl's priest, Father Michael Cleary, to step in and issue a veiled threat to Frank that he would tell Esther unless he paid for his son, under the guise of medical expenses. Within a short time, more than £600 was left anonymously at the workplace of the girl's father, and the matter was hushed up. By the way, on a bit of a footnote, that priest himself, Father Michael Cleary, also fathered a secret love child. Priests, are. By all accounts, the Irish Amateur Swimming Association was a bit of a hotbed of scandal at the time. Two of Frank McCann's closest allies in the organisation were George Gibney and Derry O'Rourke, both of whom were later to be exposed as repeat sex offenders who used their positions of authority to interfere with young children. In 1993, Gibney was charged with 27 counts of indecent assault on unlawful carnal knowledge. When a young swimmer first revealed some years before that she'd been abused by Gibney, who did she confide in? Frank McCann. McCann defended Gibney against the allegations and the matter was hushed up. Gibney eventually left the country in 1993 to live in the United States. He's never been extradited. Derry O'Rourke, meanwhile, was another swimming coach who abused more than a dozen young women and was arrested and charged with 90 counts of indecent assault, sexual assault, and unlawful carnal knowledge in 1995. He was jailed in 1997, and served nine years of a 12-year sentence. Sadly, some things never change, do they? How often have we heard stories like this, be it at children's homes, the BBC, the Irish Amateur Swimming Association? Absolutely rife, absolutely everywhere. So unsurprisingly then, as Frank seemed more interested in ensuring that the Irish young Olympian females tested positive for himself, things were not idyllic at the McCann home after they'd been married for just a year. Within this year, members of the O'Brien family began to detect that the honeymoon period of the marriage was well and truly over. Where he was once attentive and courteous, he now came across as colder and a lot less interested in his wife. 
he was heard on more than one occasion to tell his friends that Esther was unable to conceive a child for the couple, something that had caused several rows and was obviously a bone of contention between the two. He cruelly suggested that she was infertile, a mockery of the memory of the tragic loss of baby Sarah some years before, and he even had the brass neck to suggest that Esther may be off having affairs left, right and centre, where she was nothing but loyal to her husband, and he was putting it about all over the shop. In fact, there was nothing drastically medically wrong with Esther, although she did have an underactive thyroid gland. This was an ailment that, with treatment, could of course be rectified. And it was, because by 1989, believing that her busy schedule and hard workload were contributing to the condition, Esther cut back on the hours that she was working, and generally was a bit kinder to herself, taking things easier. Within a year, her condition had been rectified. The couple's desire for a child was realised, albeit in an unusual manner. In 1990, Frank's teenage sister Jeanette had fallen pregnant, and given birth to a baby girl, Jessica, in March 1991. Throughout Jeanette's pregnancy, Esther had been a tower of strength to the young woman, providing support and advice that must have been hard for her, but it was, of course, par the course with her caring nature. She'd also been in a similar situation some years before herself, after all. Esther would go each day to visit Jeanette at the Coombe Maternity Hospital, and was even present when baby Jessica was born. With the blessing of Jeanette, Esther and Frank decided to raise Jessica as their own child, and to formalise the relationship, they applied to the adoption board to adopt the infant. Jessica soon became Esther's whole world, and everyone who knew her described how the baby girl lit up her life completely. And just 18 months later, both Esther and Jessica had been killed in a horrific inferno. The Monday following the fire, 7th of September, Garda received the pathologist's report on the tragic mother and daughter. Jessica was found to have died as a result of smoke inhalation, as soot had been found in her air passages and lungs. There were no other injuries found on her aside from these, and mercifully, she most likely had slept throughout the fire. I say merciful because something like that is horrific enough as it is anyway, without imagining the poor little mite being awake through that. The autopsy on the body of Esther McCann revealed the full extent of the burns that she'd received. Her head and upper body had been badly disfigured due to the burns she'd received, and the remains of some of her clothing had stuck to her body as a result of the intense heat from the inferno. Cause of death was attributed to inhalation of lethal levels of poisonous carbon monoxide fumes and gas, and like Jessica, her body showed no other injuries aside from those received in the fire. At a two-day funeral held some days later at the church in Furhouse, Frank McCann stood at the altar and told the packed church of his love for his wife and his devastation at his loss. He spoke in glowing terms about his late wife and daughter, giving several anecdotes about Esther's act of kindness and interests, and of all of the happy times that they'd spent together. He placed Jessica's first pair of shoes on a tiny white coffin, and again moved the congregation to tears with a heartfelt poem that he'd written in tribute to his late family. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. Esther's family were so touched by the poem 
that it was reprinted in the Munster Express the week following the funeral, and Esther's family clipped out a copy and framed it. Very much the grieving husband and everybody there was taken in by such a heartfelt performance. But the mask was about to slip. On the journey back to the cooperage, McCann was seen shouting lewd comments out of the car window to young women as he passed them, despite having just buried his wife and child. Then that evening, a surprise party to celebrate his mother's 60th birthday went ahead at the cooperage where everyone sang happy birthday and there was a cake and candles being blown out the full shibonga. It had been pre-arranged and Frank saw no reason to cancel it. Now I find that quite bizarre really. It's not the kind of time for any sort of celebration. But some people, eh, they're just hard-faced like that. Certainly not the type of behaviour that you would associate with someone who just buried his wife, an 18-month-old child, who died in such horrific circumstances. Nobody could believe that, remembers a former colleague, but then Frank was always a cold, distant sort, and some people don't show their emotions. I put it down to that. Within a short time of the fatal fire, detectives at the Tallet Station Incident Room were also receiving other reports about Frank McCann that strengthened their suspicions about him not quite being the grieving husband that he made out he was. Several reports came forward that he'd become involved in a relationship with a young woman in Blessington, and detectives were shocked to find that these reports were indeed true. It was quite common knowledge, and the girl even stayed overnight with him at the Cooperage on regular occasions, where he claimed to Esther that he was working late. Also, much more significantly, the investigating team discovered that the McCann household had had a series of gas leaks over the previous few months, four over the month of July. The first one, reported on the 3rd of July, was investigated by the gas board and was written off as a false alarm, but two weeks later following another report, a massive leak of gas was discovered and rectified. Then on the 26th of July, gas board officials were out again after Frank had called them once again to complain but on this occasion they could find no trace of any gas leak, despite a thorough investigation, bearing in mind that twice that month that engineers had already been called out to the same address, and the substantial leak that they had found two weeks before. Two days later, the most serious leak yet occurred, whilst Frank was out of the house at the cooperage. The night before, a friend of Esther's had been visiting her at home, where she was later to describe Esther as being very dopey, almost drugged, before she retired to bed. It was remarkable enough to stay in her friend's mind, as Esther uncharacteristically didn't even say goodnight to her friend, and just headed off up to bed, before Frank drove her friend home. Esther awoke the following morning with a blinding headache, and finding the house filled with gas. Luckily she was a capable woman, and having been briefly employed at the gas board, Esther knew the safety precautions to take. She grabbed Jessica and her mobile phone, then left the house and got into the car, first rolling it down the driveway and onto the street to prevent the ignition possibly sparking the build-up of gas. When she was at a safe distance, she'd started the car and had then called Frank to tell him what had happened. He was absolutely furious about this, but he directed his anger towards the gas board, and told Esther that he would contact them immediately. 
Angry, perhaps, because for the fourth time his gas leak still hadn't been fixed. Or angry because his plans had failed and Esther's quick and logical thinking had saved her and her little girl's life. Later inspection by the gas board revealed that the immense build-up of gas in the house had been caused by the separation of two gas joints under floorboards beneath the understairs alcove. They'd only been installed two weeks earlier following the earlier major gas leak when a new meter and pipe work had been put in. The work had been done by approved fitters, safety checked and there was no logical way that the joints could have separated by accident. The examiners later told Garda that, in their opinion, the pipework had been manually and deliberately dismantled, and privately, they believed it was a possible insurance scam. But Garda saw this more as a series of events which could only be described as attempts on Esther's life. The Garda were now faced with a possible scenario where Esther was probably drugged by Frank, who then broke the gas pipes before leaving for the cooperage. This theory was given weight by the results of the forensic examination of the house following the fatal fire only a few weeks later. Sure enough, some of the floorboards in the understairs recess were found removed and there were fresh wood chippings on the floor, evidence of what suggested to be recent work, which would tie in with the meter installation and new gas pipes just a few weeks before the fire. There was also clear visible evidence of welding solder on the subfloor that indicated recent work had been carried out on these pipes. But was this done by the gas board, or had Frank done it? Yet another strange occurrence emerged in the weeks preceding the fire, but this time not involving gas. On the night of the 14th of August, Esther was suddenly awoken in the early hours by the sounds of the telephone ringing, and awoke to the terrifying sight of an electric blanket on fire at the bottom of the bed. As she sprung up and attempted to put the flames out, Frank rushed into the room and pulled the plug out of the wall. What a hero. Between them they managed to get the fire under control and extinguish it, and it was lucky that the telephone had rang to wake Esther. It had been staff at the cooperage looking for Frank because the alarm system had gone off at the pub. It left Esther badly shaken. As it would do, of course, something like that would be pretty unforgettable, wouldn't it? Frank, however, didn't seem overly bothered. He took the blanket away with him shortly afterwards and disposed of it. It was never seen or mentioned again, treated as just something that happened. Even in that run of gas leaks and incidents, how unlucky can a family be? With luck like that, you wouldn't have let Frank put your lottery on for you, would you? No, you're alright, Frank. I'll get my own tie, you Jonah. Esther happened to mention this bizarre incident to her family, remarking how strange it was because the blanket was plugged in, but was folded in four and placed on the bed, not fitted to it. She hadn't even remembered putting the electric blanket on the bed. Indeed, the last time she'd saw it had been on the bed in the guest room where her sister Monica was staying with them. She was definite about this because she remembered Monica placing her folded clothes on top of it. It's possible that the family would have pressed this and the other strange occurrences further as being more than a coincidence and indeed suspicious had the family not been distracted by the sad news of Esther's nephew James being readmitted to hospital after a recurrence of his cancer. Less than three weeks later, 
it was too late. In his statement made on the 5th of September, McCann had also mentioned telephone threats being made to the West Wicklow house across the road from the cooperage. He could give dates that he claimed the landlord there had told him. A check with the proprietor revealed that this was indeed true, but a check through Telecom Aran's records revealed that the malicious telephone calls had actually been made from the phone at number 39 Butterfield Avenue. Then McCann received another death threat. McCann reported to the investigating team that he'd received a sick mass card which had been addressed to him and delivered to the house of a friend where he was staying at the time. On the 18th of September, Detective Sergeant Brendan Gallagher was sent out to interview McCann about this, but when the detective arrived, McCann insisted on bringing him to the kitchen first, before showing him the card. There, McCann suddenly collapsed on the floor and appeared to be semi-conscious. Medical assistance was summoned and a doctor attended, but when the doctor attempted to administer a tranquilizing injection to McCann, he suddenly seemed highly alert and fought off the doctor violently before jumping to his feet. He then showed Sergeant Gallagher the card. The card read, At the request of Ha-Ha, the holy sacrifice of the Mass will be offered for Francis McCann, at the request of the Reverend Burns. Some of the words on the card were even made from cut-out newspaper headlines. How much more absolute bollocks do you need to get? By now firmly convinced that McCann was not only a double killer, but was attempting to paint himself as the victim of some vendetta, detectives searched for his motive before they considered arresting him. The answer came as soon as they made inquiries into the status of the McCann's application to adopt little Jessica, because they found out that the adoption board had turned down the couple's application to adopt her. McCann's earlier indiscretions, the love child that he'd fathered with a 17-year-old swimmer, had been found out. When news got out that he and his wife were attempting to adopt a young child, where he had refused to have anything to do with his own biological son, the teenage girl's mother had taken it upon herself to contact the adoption board and report how Frank McCann had made her daughter pregnant. These claims were examined and found to be true and on the 28th of July, the board decided that it was not satisfied McCann was of good moral character, and therefore did not comply with Section 13 of the Adoption Act. Their decision was conveyed to McCann's solicitor, who was also told that the board wanted him to tell the McCann's and Jessica's natural mother of their decision. This, for reasons unexplained, had not filtered back to Esther. Perhaps Frank had hidden any written correspondence from her, of course but she was ignorant of the decision made and she continued to press the adoption board writing letters to him asking for an explanation of their delay. So the board had reached its conclusion on the 28th of July. The same day Frank's solicitor had informed him of the reason. It was also the same day of the massive gas leak. Frank had made the decision that Esther would never find out about his secret love child. He'd rather kill both Esther and Jessica and be found out and lose his status in swimming circles. I can't even begin to fathom the logic of that. It's truly horrific and psychopathic. The evidence that the investigating team had amassed pointed to a well-planned murder. 
They believed that on the evening of the fire, McCann had acted normally all evening. He'd gone to the pub for closing time as this was his usual occurrence. He'd gotten chips at the local takeaway and had let the barman go home early to establish an alibi. He gave the impression that there was a great deal of stock taking and clearing up to be done and that he himself would carry this out. Instead, once Alex MacDonald had left, McCann jumped into his Toyota Starlet and sped off back towards his home in Rathfarnham, a journey that at that time of night on deserted roads would have taken about 20 minutes. He parked his car up and silently crept inside so as not to wake Esther or Jessica and made his way through the dining room to the rear patio door, outside which he had earlier concealed the gas canister and blowtorch. He silently carried them inside and then once in the downstairs hallway, sprinkled the carpet with an accelerant, perhaps petrol or pure alcohol, the type publicans use for cleaning. Garda then believed McCann had placed the gas cylinder on the hall table in the middle of all the accelerant and trained the lighted blowtorch onto it, then once the fire had taken hold, had left through the front door and ran to his car. It was deliberately placed where it would create the least chance of escape for his wife and baby Jessica in the hallway on the hall table, engulfing the stairs. They believed that McCann had practiced setting his deadly inferno beforehand. A rug matching that of the McCann's bedroom carpet was subsequently found in a skip near to the Cooperage pub. It had severe scorch marks on it, and it was identified as a piece of leftover bedroom carpet that Esther had edged off and used as a rug. McCann had taken it and practiced setting his fire beforehand, and when Garda repeated the same experiments, they found that the delay in the cylinder exploding would allow McCann enough time to get away before the inevitable and devastating explosion. He would have then had time to regain composure and settle his story before returning to the scene. For someone who loved to act, he then had every chance to play the devastated husband and father and to go through the whole sham of trying to rush into the scene, fainting, being inconsolable. It was all complete and utter fiction. After their tests had been completed, the guard had determined that the arson attack was in effect an explosion and so decided to arrest McCann under the Offences Against the State Act, which meant that he could be held in custody for up to two days. Normally, where a murder is committed and the weapon used is anything but a firearm, Garda can only use the provisions of the Criminal Justice Act 1984 to effect the arrest of a suspect, and these provide for a maximum period of detention of 12 hours. Early in the afternoon of 4th of November 1992, just two months to the day of the blaze which had killed Esther and Jessica, and the very date that I'm writing this episode actually, Two teams of armed detectives converged on the Cooperage pub in Blessington. As one team made a search around the premises, the other made their way upstairs, where at 1.22pm, Frank McCann was arrested under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act on suspicion of causing a scheduled offence, namely causing an explosion. 30 minutes later, McCann was back at Tallet Station, where he was brought to a detention room and his solicitor was informed of his arrest. Shortly after this, McCann began shaking in the room and was unable to form words. It appeared for all the world as though he was having a panic attack. His own GP and a police surgeon, who were both brought in to examine him immediately, deemed him fit for interview, however. The act didn't wash anymore. 
Over the next 12 hours, McCann was interviewed in tandem by teams of detectives who questioned him in pairs. The questioning went on into the night, throughout which McCann stuck to his earlier account that he had given, and insisted that police were wrong. There was no way on earth he'd deliberately started an inferno that had killed Esther and Jessica. He must have considered that at some point he may possibly be arrested on suspicion, but he felt that the legislation Garda were going to use was for the maximum detention period of 12 hours, and had so mentally prepared himself for this. He wasn't prepared for 24 hours of detention, and the following afternoon, Chief Superintendent Michael Reed, the divisional commander, signed an order that extended McCann's detention for a further 24 hours to the maximum 48. That evening at about 10.40pm, Detective Sergeants Robbie McNulty and Morris O'Connor from the Harcourt Square Central Detective Unit took over the questioning of McCann, and during the course of this interview, they presented him with the evidence of the Telecom Iran computer printouts, which revealed that the malicious telephone calls that he'd spoken of in his earlier statement had been made from his own home telephone. Faced with this evidence, and detectives changing their tack of questioning, telling him to come clean, McCann admitted that he'd made the threatening telephone calls to the West Wicklow House pub. He became upset when it was put to him that he himself had never received any telephone calls, and he agreed that this was true, saying, I had to make it look that way. He then also admitted sending the mass card to himself, writing the entries in the Cooperage telephone directory and painting the threatening message on the back wall of the pub. When shortly afterwards it was put to McCann that detectives knew the reason for the adoption board's refusal for them to adopt Jessica, and that was why he'd started the fatal fire himself, he broke down and in tears nodded, saying, It was all such a horrible mess, it had to be sorted out. The following morning, following a visit from members of his family, McCann began dictating a confession to Garda Sergeants Pat Walsh and Patsy Glennon. He also requested that D.I. Sork be present, and once the three were in place, he began his tale. As they had come to expect from McCann after the theatrics they'd witnessed over the previous two months, his confession was done in a dramatic style. It was exactly as the investigating team had envisaged in their suspicions, from the previous attempts right down to the test run that he'd performed on the rug, and McCann described the event as though he was reliving it in his mind's eye, telling officers, I burned my fingers because there were flames everywhere. There was burning and it just went whoosh. I brought the cylinder and blowtorch in because I was going to finish it off. I was going to clear up the mess, me, Esther and Jessica. Describing himself standing in the doorway of his home, he continues, I have to get away. I don't want to go, but it's my fault. I'm the problem. Then later he adds, I need to get away, but I can't go from everything. I can't leave them. I can't leave without them. Further on, he says he would do anything to get them back. But at 1.22pm, whilst McCann was in mid-flow of his statement, he was inexplicably allowed to leave as his 48-hour detention was up. Can you believe that? I know we said before that the maximum allowed was 48 hours, but McCann was not charged there and then after confessing to deliberately starting the fire. Instead, he was allowed to leave the station, but for some reason, he returned just seven minutes later 
and voluntarily completed his statement. Perhaps, but I doubt it really, it was an attack of conscience, but whatever the reason he completed the statement, which was signed by McCann and witnessed by all three Garda and two of his brothers in the presence of his solicitor. The Garda decided not to charge McCann with the murders immediately, but to instead send a file on the case to the Department of Public Prosecutions for them to decide on the matter. Now I find this hard to get my head around really. I mean, they had an exact picture of what had happened, physical evidence to back up police theory, and McCann's own confession. I don't know what was to question here. He surely should have been re-arrested and charged immediately after completing his voluntary statement. Instead, McCann was for the time being free to go, and immediately checked himself into St. John of God's Hospital in Stillorgan, where he underwent psychiatric treatment. Most likely this was in an attempt to establish a possible defence of insanity at any forthcoming trial, but the notes and telephone calls that he'd admitted to making, some after the event, the previous attempts that he'd made on his wife's life, and the alibi that he'd attempted to create for himself, was more than ample evidence of premeditation. Any defence of insanity would have been difficult to maintain with this. He was eventually discharged from the psychiatric clinic some weeks later, and he moved from Dublin to a mobile home in Stradbally, a small village in the south of Ireland. And it was here, as in some macabre coincidence, just as he was fitting out the caravan with new gas pipework beneath the floor, that on the 22nd of April 1993, Frank McCann was arrested under warrant for the murders of Esther and 18-month-old Jessica. That evening, he appeared before the local district court and was charged with both murders. When a date had been set for McCann's trial, a team comprised of Garda, McCann's defence team and state prosecutors travelled over to England to carry out a remarkable and costly experiment in preparation for the upcoming trial. At a cost of £70,000, an exact replica of the interior of the house at number 39 Butterfield Road had been constructed, and an exact reconstruction of the events McCann had dictated in his statement were carried out which was videotaped for later evidential use. It showed beyond doubt that McCann had caused the blaze by pouring an accelerant around the downstairs of the property, placing the canister in the middle of the hallway on the table and setting it ablaze using the blowtorch. When the gas canister exploded, this created the loud bang that awoke neighbours. On the 11th of January 1994, McCann's trial for murder began before Judge O'Hanlon in the Central Criminal Court in Dublin, where for almost three weeks the prosecution presented their impressive case. The defence case was largely ineffective, but McCann wasn't quite finished with the drastic theatrics just yet. On the 31st of January 1994, he set fire to himself using a can of deodorant in his cell at Arbor Hill Prison. He wasn't killed, but he was so severely burned about the head and shoulders that he required a substantial period of hospitalisation, and as a result, the trial had to be abandoned. It was to be a further two years before a new trial date was set. But on the 10th of June 1996, the second trial began. A reporter for the Sunday Tribune newspaper who was covering the trial, Brenda Power, described proceedings. He had to be carried from the witness box, shaking and crying. In the course of his testimony and at other times he sat hunched between two prison officers, 
his face in his hands or his eyes fixed on the floor. At times of stress, the red burn marks left by the flaming deodorant on his forehead and temple turned to an angry crimson. But when the jurors were out, he was a different man. Far from being the distraught, bereaved widower accused of nightmarish crimes, he was animated, focused, controlled and watchful. He complained about the state of the holding cell in the basement, in reality an exact replica of the press room on the other side of the hall. He explained swimming techniques to the garda, and most bizarrely, whilst waiting for jurors to return, he sat calmly reading a murder mystery novel, a forensic science courtroom drama about a woman accused of murdering her mother and stepdaughter. McCann's trial was to last 48 days, at the time the second longest criminal trial in the state's history, and on Thursday the 15th of August, the jury returned a unanimous verdict of guilty of the murders of Esther and Jessica against Frank McCann. Members of Esther's family who'd been in court throughout the duration of the trial wept and hugged each other, saying a very vocal approval as the verdict was announced. Stood before Mr Justice Carney, McCann showed no emotion as he had concurrent mandatory sentences of life imprisonment imposed upon him. He was to make an appeal against his conviction, which took more than 18 months to be heard, but on the 12th of March 1998, his appeal was dismissed at the Court of Criminal Appeal. McCann is currently serving his two life sentences at Dublin's Arbor Hill Prison. Detectives involved in bringing McCann to justice were in no doubt that he was capable of killing again. D.I. Tony Sork said, He was a complete sociopath. He would have killed any number of people if he thought it would serve his purposes. He had no compassion for anybody. In all my years investigating serious crime, he was the worst case I've ever come across. He is a very dangerous man, a clinical psychopath. That is the only way to describe him. But even though McCann was now behind bars, Esther's broken family were still devastated and still left to put the pieces back together. Her mother Bridget said in an interview after the trial, When I think of it, the lies, the fools that we were. We've been crying for four years. They're gone for four years, and this won't make a difference to that. But maybe it will make a difference, because I believe he would do it again. We were blind. Frank killed the best two friends that he had in the world. The only friends that he had in this world. He killed his baby over another baby. The O'Brien family took steps to ensure that McCann didn't profit in any way from the deaths of Esther and Jessica. In October 1998, the O'Brien family were awarded half of the net proceeds of the sale of the £180,000 house in Butterfield Avenue, whilst in a decision that was a landmark in Irish law, McCann was ordered to pay the family £27,900, which he'd accrued from his share of a life insurance policy on the mortgage, plus a further £9,300 under the Civil Liberty Act for mental stress and funeral expenses. No need for cash where you're spending your life, McCann. 26 years after burning his wife and child to death, McCann is still imprisoned at Arbor Hill Prison in Dublin. He has, during his sentence, completed a degree in computer science, followed by doing a PhD. Where he previously worked in the prison library, it was reported last year by the Irish Independent 
that McCann has now started a new job at the jail, cleaning the prison officer's quarters. This sees him walked from the prison, not handcuffed, but accompanied by a prison officer, out onto the public street and into the area used by officers which is further down the road. Pictures and a video taken at the time show a smirking McCann casually dressed in summer sports clothes, talking animatedly with a prison officer as he enjoyed his temporary freedom. He doesn't engage with the rehabilitation services, doesn't show any remorse, and considers himself a step above the other prisoners looking down on them, said one source. His new job is seen as a recognition of trust, and that he gets to step outside the gates unrestrained, even though there's an officer with him. Esther's family have previously said that they fear a day will come when McCann is released. Every three years he's entitled to seek parole, and each time Esther's family makes submissions as to why he should be kept behind bars. Esther's sister Marion said, I can't describe the feeling of being near him. It's fear mixed with sadness, anger and regret, everything. You're literally paralysed by his presence. He killed Esther and Jessica to maintain his reputation. Possession, ownership and image meant everything to him. It was what he thrived on in swimming circles. He had lots of chances to change his mind, and you'd think that after three failed attempts he might have given up, but he was absolutely determined to kill. It was reported in February 2018 that Marion was to write to Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan to express her concerns over McCann's possible release, saying, He has the final decision. I just can't understand what the parole board are thinking. They are being very naive to think it would ever be safe to release this convicted child murderer back into any community. He's not an old man, and I feel that he still poses a threat. I believe that Frank McCann indeed still would pose a threat. I've got to stop here for a minute and just ponder at this whole unbelievable story, because it's just horrendous, isn't it? It boggles my mind how someone can be so depraved what kind of cowardice of being found out for your own sordid acts drives a person to commit such an awful crime? How can you put the lives of a woman and baby above status and discovery? A baby. I find the case a sickening one. To commit such cold-blooded murder is true horror, but then all of the acting and theatrics and the lengths to go to to paint some fictitious vendetta afterwards. Throw that bastard key right away. With a monster such as Frank McCann, it's likely that if anything or anyone stood in the way of his well-being, his gain or his status, he'd have no compunction but to remove the problem. It started most likely years before by torching his own struggling business. Different things were important to him. He even removed his chain of office for the Leinster branch of the Irish Swimming Association from the house before he set fire to it not wanting something that meant so much to him to perish. How unbelievable is that? One of those people who should never again see the light of day. A complete psychopath. So what then are your thoughts on the dreadful actions of Frank McCann? I only ever put a short brief out when I do post the threads up for discussion online, as I feel that my own opinions are conveyed throughout the episode. That's what I always try to do anyway, and hopefully that's come across during this one. The thread is there for you now to give me your thoughts, which I look forward to reading and chipping in with. I know this has been a tragic story this week, but as I always say, 
Find me a jolly crime where we all have a good laugh and a chuckle at the end of it, and I'll put it out of course. I do strive for the obscure on the show, as you know, and just researching this case, I thought it may be a very unfamiliar one. I didn't know it at all, but I'm sure McCann's name is a well-remembered name in Ireland. If you do something of that horror, people don't forget easily, do they? I hope that you found the episode interesting anyway, and I'll wrap it up for this week here, but I shall of course be back next week with another tale that I hope you can join me for. A bit of a lighter one next week I shall try for. Also, coming very soon, I'm excited to say that following our last one, I have the pleasure of a collaboration once again with host of the Outlines podcast and friend of the show, Jess Carter, coming up. We got together to work on a case, and the case we've co-covered is as dark as they come, so look out for that one soon. You can catch me in the meantime using my social media links, which are in the episode notes as ever, or always the True Crime Enthusiast or a slight variation on that. If you don't follow and wish to, just look for the Creepy Hand Show logo. Or of course, as a Patreon supporter if you'd wish, get yourself some bonus episodes or other goodies. I best shoot off and crack on with that lighter episode now. So I have been, still am, and still will be Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, Wishing you guys all happy and safe times, and I shall speak to you again soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.